the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of truth, who art in all places and fillest all things, treasury of good things and giver of life, come and dwell in us and cleanse us from every stain, and save our souls, O gracious Lord, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Every year that I experience Holy Week, and this is, by the way, before, even before I became a clergy in the church, every year that I experience Holy Week, I find myself in what I call, the only thing I can label it is a joyful exhaustion, a joyful exhaustion. And at the same time, there's something mixed in the joyful exhaustion that there's a bit of mourning. There's a bit of sadness in me every year. And usually it starts hitting me after the, the Sunday of the resurrection. We've done the Paschal Vigil. We come back on Sunday and we do the, the Mass of Pascha. And we're sitting here having lunch and I'm having such a wonderful time and a sadness starts to kick in. I don't like leaving Holy Week. In fact, I despise leaving Holy Week. And the reason for that is I really believe that that week of all weeks, you've always heard me describe it as otherworldly. Time flows differently for every one of us during Holy Week. And it feels encapsulated from every other week of the year. As well it should. There's a reason it's called Holy Week. Holy means set apart to God. And that week is set apart to God for the most unbelievable experience of what Christ did for our life and for our salvation. Father James this week, I think it was two or three days ago, Father James Rooney sent me an email from a friend of his who's Orthodox, but in his older age, he had never, because of his work schedule, never been able to do a complete Holy Week until this year. And he wrote Father James, and Father James had, he said, I got to share this with you because I believe it's one of the most perfect testimonies of Holy Week. Listen to what he wrote, Father James. He said, at 58 years of age, this being the first time I could make it all the way through Holy Week, all I can say is, wow. I can also add this, the unfolding of the readings All of the hymns, the troparia, all of the services kind of collapses time. Making the trip into Jerusalem and all that happened seemed to unfold right before you in its immediacy. All of this combined to lead me to a recognition. The world is madness. Christ is sanity. Now that's the perfect description of someone coming out of Holy Week. That realization, the world is madness, Christ is sanity. I love that. And that really blessed me, and it really is a a testimony from my own heart of my own experiences. For those of us who seek Christ and attend most, if not all, of Holy Week, all of us are going to leave processing for the rest of our existence the things that our Lord has revealed to us during these weeks. And we must, having been offered that incredible profound taste of Christ and His kingdom in what we receive in Holy Week, one of the keys is we must carry it forward. 
We must take every experience that we had during Holy Week with our Lord because it's transforming us. And we need to do this gleaning. Remember how uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary pondered these things in her heart? Well, after every Holy Week, we need to be pondering these things in our heart because God is using what we ponder, what He revealed to us for the transformation of our souls. Just like anything else in our faith, we're being transformed from faith to faith and from glory to glory in Jesus Christ by the experience of Him. And so now in our discipleship classes, we have four weeks left. I sent out an email letting you know what we're going to do. We're going to be focusing primarily on the experience that everyone had with the risen Lord Jesus Christ from His resurrection to His ascension, the exception being today. Today, we're going to look at Christ's harrowing of Hades, that which was the great theme of the Paschal Vigil. We enter into that darkness, and He brings His light into that darkness, and we get pulled out of our bondage, just as they were pulled out of their bondage in Hades. In the harrowing of Hades, I am absolutely constantly in awe and in wonder of what Christ did as the mighty deliverer that He is when He went down into Hades. It's something that I've constantly, there's, there's been a growing longing to prayerfully grow in an experience of what Christ did in His harrowing of Hades. It's going to be something I'm never going to fully grasp. You're never going to fully grasp, but one we should certainly pursue and ask and treat the Lord to show us more about His harrowing of Hades because it has a lot to do with what He does in our own deliverance of our own individual lives. And the more that I have encountered through the church Christ's harrowing of Hades that's placed before me every holy week, the more I've come to think of the harrowing of Hades as the violent acts of love by Christ our God. This is something that keeps coming back to me, the violent acts of love by Christ Violent, how? To the kingdom of darkness. It is absolutely an act of violence and overthrowing and demolishing and bringing to its knees the kingdom of darkness. Violent to our oppressor, Satan, who is now bound because of this and rendered weak because of this, which we're going to look at today. Violent to the kingdom of darkness and our oppressor, but filled with the divine love for every soul that was captured and had been in Hades long in captivity. And so for today, when we look at the harrowing of Hades, what I'm going to be using is this. I'm going to use the icon of the resurrection as our guide to see all that Christ did in the harrowing of Hades because it's a wonderful guide. It has everything there if we look at it, and the church has taught about it forever. I'm also going to be referencing Scripture, a bit of old, bit of new. I'm going to be referencing again the Paschal Homily of St. John Chrysostom. We're going to see it kind of come to life, words that he says and what Christ did. And then I'm also going to be referencing this book that I encourage everyone to read. I picked it up at the clergy retreat in February, Uh, Eighth Day Books always has literally half their store for us at the clergy retreat. It's awesome. And I picked this up this year because I really wanted to glean throughout Lent, and I haven't even finished it yet because I have to stay and consider. 
and it's called Christ the Conqueror of Hell, the Descent into Hades from an Orthodox Perspective. It's written by Metropolitan Hilarion Alfaev. You know anything about Metropolitan Hilarion? He is known all throughout the world as one of the top Orthodox theologians. He is a true Orthodox theologian. That his theology comes from the experience of Christ like we talked about today. He's also a known church historian and an incredible composer of orchestral music. And he's done much for the divine liturgy. He's a wonderful, humble, blessed metropolitan who wrote that book. And I'll tell you why I recommend it so much. You've heard Father Rooney mention this. You've heard me mention this. But if you're looking for a book that expresses theology in a way that leads you to the experienced, you want this book. The book is filled. The New and Old Testament full right it with tree for the church within the first 200 years starting the going of heaven and it's with the continued teaching all throughout on what Christ did so I'm going to be using just very briefly and for a lot of the ideas that you'll hear they they were drawn from what I've gleaned from it so far in my reading of that book and so let's talk about what Hades was before we talk about it being demolished by Christ And I'm going to say first what it's not. Hades is not the burning flames eternal of hell where Satan and all the demonic will be thrust into by St. Michael the archangel at the end. This is not Hades. There are a number of words for Hades in the Old Testament. Hades, Sheol, you know, many others are used for this. But Hades was, in fact, a prison of all souls who had died. It was a prison that was enshrouded in darkness where those souls were kept in bondage for all of that time. Every soul from the first to die after the fall to that very moment when Christ descended into it, when He gave up His ghost and descended into it, was captive there. In other words, all souls from Adam and Eve to that very moment, were imprisoned there and without knowing it, awaiting Christ to come and reveal Himself and offer them release from their captivity. Hades is also thought of as a place of descent. We see many Psalms that speak to this, that testify to Hades as a descent, calling it the pit, the grave, and so many other terms. And there are many other references to the harrowing of hell in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah speaks numerous times of it. Prophet Zechariah speaks of it. The prophet Hosea foretells of the harrowing of Hades by Christ our God. And so what we want to do today, looking at what has been harrowed, now you see what's there. All of the souls captured, imprisoned in darkness. What we're going to do today is look at the resurrection, like I said, as our guide to understand the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ in the harrowing of Hades. So let's look very briefly at it. Obviously, at the center of the icon of every, every icon of the resurrection, we see Christ our God. How would you describe how our Lord Jesus Christ is arrayed in Hades? What do you see? Light 
glowing, absolutely, brilliant, radiance, very active, nice, very nice, absolutely. The church teaches us that even the blue that's around him, much less the glory that's emanating from it, is the uncreated light of the glory that the Word of God has had without time, from all eternity. And when he goes down, yes. Oh, please, go ahead. I don't mean to be I know no no I know what you mean. Go ahead. The way he's focused yes. and he's reaching down and pulling up out of the the power that yes. I see in him. Yes. Uh root me to it. Because I you know, I grew up in kind of um kind of watered down evangelical churches and you often see this sort of a weak Jesus image. Yeah. You know, he was compassionate, but he didn't yeah. see his power. Uh, and I love the resurrection of Jesus because I see his power. That's exactly That's exactly right. He Yeah, yeah. Very similar picture of the transfiguration that we see where the glory of the Word of God, that uncreated light, comes forth from His very being. And in this case, it's shining in the most dark place. It did that night, but this is the most dark place. So very good. There's an absolute parallel to those two things. Yes. I want you to think, here's all we know about it. What we know, you, you need it, the way that the fathers describe it to us, as has been revealed to them, is it's described like a, like, like a dark prison of all souls who had died. They're all in prison. Think of it behind bars. That's the image we're given. Now, whether they were actual bars or not, irrelevant. They were captive. They were in bondage to death and the darkness thereof. And, uh-huh. Well, because our Lord had not unified us once again. All had fallen, and there was no redemption up to that point. Everybody, stay there for a second. Tell you what, I know you got a lot of questions, but let's look at all of it, and then we'll definitely hit along the way, absolutely. But I'm going to show you a lot about what, the, what has been revealed to the church about the harrowing of Hades itself. Okay? There was no other place for the soul to go. Since the fall, there was no way to paradise. You see? Satan had all souls captive. All souls. All right? And we're going to look at that in in just a moment. So we see our Lord Jesus Christ, however, entering into that darkness in the fullness of the glory of the Word of God. Okay? And I want you to capture an important, very important distinction. 
between how we see Jesus here and just moments before. Because this was the scene. Look at it. Notice the differences. There's no radiance of the glory of God emanating from Him. They keep a halo to instruct us that even though it was enshrouded in His flesh, He maintained His divinity. But it was not shining forth in radiance for all to see. It was hidden intentionally by the Godhead. But this is what he looked like just moments before descending. Rather than him being free and strong and powerful, we see hands nailed and in bondage to a tree. And we see feet in the same way, nailed and in bondage to a tree, suffering, dying. And notice how our Lord is clothed and arrayed. It is not with the brilliance of the white garment and the glory of God. In fact, I'm going to tell you right now, for Roman persecutions, this is modest. They crucified people naked to shame them. Rome shamed people in that way. So this is how our Lord Jesus Christ was arrayed in His death. In lowly, lowly garments, if any. Now I want you all to lock this in. What you're seeing here, in this icon... You're seeing the very way that Satan the deceiver became deceived. You see, this is how the wool was pulled over the deceiver's eyes by Christ, our God himself. This is how Satan saw Jesus Christ. He saw humanity, a humanity that could suffer. He saw a humanity that could die. And so in Satan's mind, I'm killing my enemy. He believed it thoroughly. The truth was hidden from him by God. He blinded Satan's eyes to the truth. Therefore, Satan believed that by killing Christ, he obtains the victory, but he was deceived. And this is why St. John Chrysostom's words are so perfectly put in the Paschal homily we hear preached every year. Watch this. Let me move this over here so I can do this. Satan, synonymous with death, took a body and it came upon God. It took earth, but it encountered heaven. It took what it saw but it crumbled before what it had not seen. Do you see what's happening to Satan in those moments? And the, the incredible wisdom and strategy of God for the redemption of all souls. The deceiver was deceived and this deception would crush the serpent's head as prophesied in Genesis. An eternal impact as Christ would descend upon him and his descent into Hades, the place of the dead. Now let's notice a number of things that our Lord is doing with strength. Notice in the icon that we have two objects, actually three, two are together. It might be hard to see, but there are three objects down there. The first is this, 
These feet, once in bondage by nails to a tree that we saw in the crucifixion icon, are now free and they are trampling down Hades victoriously. And the two bronze pieces that you see here are for us the gates of Hades that he is trampling down. The church used bronze because bronze doors at that time were made to be incredibly strong. It's not about being literal bronze. It's showing the strength of the prison, but even more so, the strength of the once nailed and bondaged feet are now trampling down and breaking in sunder, causing a complete collapse and crumbling of that which held every soul. Our Lord is trampling, we say it, we say, trampling down death by death by these blessed feet. In the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 27, as Jesus gives up his spirit, we hear these words. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked. And the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the city and appeared to many. It tells us that when Christ gave up his spirit, immediately there was an earthquake, and the rocks of the earth split, and I tell you in wonder what many of the fathers communicate to us. They say this, that earthquake was caused by those feet landing in Hades and demolishing the gates of the underworld, so to speak, that held every captive captive in captivity. What an, what an unbelievable thought that Christ descending into Hades like this, the whole earth feels what he did. And that's a wondrous, wondrous thought. So we see beneath Christ's feet, hang on one second. Yeah, also we see beneath Christ's feet, there's something else. Those are the bronze gates. What you see here is a very, very frail man who is bound now in chains, okay? And under the feet of Christ intentionally. And what this is showing us, that this man appearing very frail, weak, and bound underneath the feet of our Lord, is Satan himself. As Christ descends into Hades, he binds Satan, removing his authority and putting an end to his rule and power upon the earth. In fact, Jesus even remarks about this, about what he would do to Satan in the Gospel of St. Mark in chapter 3. I begin in verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless what? Unless he first binds the strong man. And then he will plunder his house, Jesus says. So immediately, not only are the gates of hell burst in sunder for the release of the captives, but even their oppressor is trampled on bound and rendered weak, extraordinarily frail and weak, as he's shown to be not powerful. Consider this, though. This weak, frail, bound creature who is destined for failure. 
This is the one we give power to in our lives every time he tempts us. I didn't say he has power. You didn't hear me say that. This is the one that we give power to in our lives in times of temptation when we don't cling to Christ and let him do this in the moments of temptation for us. Think about that next time that you're tempted, who it is that's tempting you the weakness, the frailty, the one who is bound, seeking to rebind you. But you're like him when Christ is seeking to trample on him so that you're like Jesus. Victorious in times of temptation. We're also taught that the bound man, the same bound man, is the, is, we're also to know him as the personification of death because Satan and death are intricately tied. Death tied to the deceiver that brought us through this deception. Uh, excuse me, death tied to the deceiver that brought us to this lowly estate. Death which bound souls in darkness for, for so long. Death itself is now bound in chains. And I return to the Paschal homily of St. John Chrysostom when he says this Let no one fear death, for the Savior's death has set us free. He that was taken by death has annihilated it. He descended into Hades and took Hades captive. He embittered it when it tasted his flesh. In anticipating this, Isaiah exclaimed, Hades was embittered when it encountered thee in the lower region. You know what that means? That means Hades had the worst taste in its mouth when Christ entered in. That he had to spit out all that were there. That's the imagery, you see. It was embittered for death was abolished. It was embittered, for it was mocked. It was embittered, for it was purged. It was embittered, for it was despoiled. It was embittered, for it was bound in chains. Death and Satan, that is their current condition and eternal one. See? That's what the icon is showing about his mighty works. You talk about power. I'm glad you said that word. It's all over what he's, what he's doing in his trampling of Hades. Remember, that's the, what I said, the violent act of love. That's the violence. That's the violence. Now, also in the icon, we see people on both sides. Okay? Let's talk about who they are, more importantly, what they represent, but they are specific people for us. And the first ones we have to mention are the ones that Christ has in his hand. We all know, at least most of us know who they are, Adam and Eve. Our Lord Jesus Christ descended into Hades, and we see him in all of his glory and all of his power and all of his love, taking those who first disobeyed and fell short of what he created them to be, and now he's redeeming them. It's honestly one of my favorite parts of the icon. Because it tells, if, if God can go to those depths to redeem and, de and deliver Adam and Eve, I know he can do it with me. It gives me great hope. You see? Well, I'll tell you, every icon is a little bit different in the number of people that it has. So I've not seen... I've not seen so much a specific writing about a teaching of that other than who in particular they are. For example, most resurrection icons have three men 
on the side of Eve. This one has a fourth. I'll be honest with you, I did not have time to investigate and find on this particular icon what the fourth was. Forgive me. Go research yourselves. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. Yes. A, a, a grip of power and strength, isn't it? Very good. Very good. This is no, ah, oh, that's perfect. Thank you. Thank you. You see, this is the blessing of iconography. Even with all the teaching of the church, what does iconography do? It instructs us and it brings us to a greater revelation, which is what the intention of the iconography is to bring us to that experience. So that's, that's wonderful. Absolutely. Thank God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They're the weak. He's the strength. They're the weakness, like it always is. Absolutely. Yeah. Very good. And he's got a firm hold on his sheep. Beautiful. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's very good. Very good. So we have Adam and Eve. Now let's look to the right of our Lord. Now the one with the staff, and, and again, there are always three. I've never seen less than three on the side, and there's always one with the staff that's closest to Eve. The reason for that is you're looking at Abel. You're looking at Abel, murdered by his brother Cain, and he's being redeemed. And then just behind them, the ne- just behind him, the next two are Abraham and Moses. Abraham and Moses. And again, forgive me for not knowing this. I will try to find an answer to that. Um, to the left of our Lord, the first one always to the left of our Lord is blessed St. John the Forerunner. We're going to get back to him in a minute. Remember, he descended into Hades not long before his cousin, our Lord Jesus Christ, did. Right after him is King David and his son, King Solomon, the line of kings, represented there. And with all of these people who are in the icon, again, it's representing to us all souls long dead in Hades, beholding, and you can see it, They are beholding life himself in Hades come to them to release them, to be freed from their prison, fulfilling what the great prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 26. He prophesied about Hades giving up the dead when he said, your dead shall live together with my dead body. He's putting himself in Hades knowing he was going there. Together with my dead body they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Prophecy in Isaiah speaking to this very thing in all of these souls. Now I want to get back to St. John the Forerunner for a moment. Some of you may have seen this, some of you have not, but it is a wondrous truth to me. 
What was the ministry of St. John the Forerunner before he died? What was Christ's purposed ministry for him? Prepare the way of Christ. And how did he prepare the way? What was his ministry particular? Repentance. It's repentance that prepares the souls to encounter and receive Christ. Okay? And we just said, who went into Hades first? St. John the Forerunner did. Look at St. John the Forerunner in the icon. It's different than the other ones. He's got both his hands out as if he's doing the talking. He is proclaiming. He's proclaiming. Speaking to those around. This is intentional in the icon because the church from very, very early on taught that St. John the Forerunner's ministry was not just for the souls on the earth. That when he went into Hades, that ministry continued, proclaiming the preparation of every soul for Christ to descend there and for them to receive Him. Isn't that an amazing thought? Yeah. Yeah, there's a tie there. Absolutely. In fact, Metropolitan Hilarion, in his book that I, I mentioned to you, he notes for us that there's a teaching from St. Hippolytus of Rome. St. Hippolytus of Rome was born in A.D. 170, 70 years after the Apostle John died, okay, and died in A.D. 235. Here's what St. Hippolytus said or I'll read you the whole part that speaks uh, from Metropolitan Hilarion's standpoint. Hippolytus also was one of the first to speak of John the Baptist preaching in Hades before Christ's descent therein. And here's the quote from St. Hippolytus. He also first preached to those in Hades, becoming a forerunner there when he was put to death by Herod. That there, were two, that there too he might intimate that the Savior would descend to ransom the souls of the saints from the hand of death. This is John's ministry. He descends and all he does is talk about he's coming. Prepare your souls. Christ is coming to release you from the, to release us all from this. Can you picture this? And what every soul must be encountering by this one just descending into Hades, proclaiming preparation through repentance to receive Christ even there. It's really a wondrous thing. And he goes, Metropolitan Hilarion goes on to say, this theme developed by authors of the second and third centuries came to occupy a prominent place in church hymnography early in the church. There were hymns to this about St. John the Forerunner. This was very recognized as a truth in our church from very, very early on. So the Forerunner having prepared the way even in Hades Christ ascends, he binds, and he releases. And he reveals himself to all in Hades, not just by the show of his glory, as if that wasn't enough. Quite an unfamiliar sight in the darkness of Hades. But we're told by our Saint Peter that he did far more than just show himself. In 1 Peter, yes, 1 Peter chapters 3 and 4, I'm going to read to you a couple different verses. 3.18 for Christ also suffered once for sins, 
that the just, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient. In chapter 4, in verse 6, for this reason, the gospel was preached to those who were dead that they might be judged according to man in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. So when Jesus went down, not only did He show Himself, He ministered to them. He, when it says He shared the gospel, you do understand that means He shared Himself. All that was done, all that has been done, all that will be. And he's telling them, I came for you because I want you to experience the fruits of all that I've done. This is what he preached. This is what he ministered to them. And the result, we know, is souls released from their imprisonment. We're told at the resurrection of Christ that those souls that were imprisoned, remember it says the rock split and so on, and the graves were open, and some of those who were dead in Hades came out and walked all through Jerusalem bearing testimony to what you see here. The people of Jerusalem are hearing through the testimony of those released what Jesus did in Hades. How would you like it if grandma came up? Can you imagine? I'm not, I'm not joking. No. The, the, you know, that's a great question. What happened to these people? What, what happened to the people that were released, came out, and preached? Um, there are a number of thoughts on that that all are kind of the same parallel, so I'll just kind of give you the summary. The summary is they, that, that when he ascended, they went with him. You know, that numerous church fathers talk about that. In fact, Saint, remember when St. Paul says when he ascended, he led captives in his train? Well, that's all the captives, so it could fit into that model that those who came out that were given to bear testimony of what Jesus did, they were in that company when he ascended that, that also went. Here's, what we're, here's what's a mystery to us. There are church fathers that say that Hades was rendered entirely empty. Because what, it doesn't remember, sin is irrelevant. They encountered the Redeemer and the forgiver of it. I tend to bank on it was empty. But there are some, but there are some fathers, and they're not, they're not trying to be combative, but they just simply are considering that when Christ went to those in Hades, everyone still in Hades still had a will intact. Could it be possible that they experienced Christ and willed not to receive him? We have to say it's possible, you know. Hard to believe, but you would have thought that everybody that saw Christ would have followed him. Karen? Now, the holding tank is destroyed. Thing, it's, it's, been, it's been annihilated. That which was is no more. 
I like where you are going. I know where you are going. But the reality is, because of this impact, it's gone. Yeah. 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 And the church, the church, even though you'll see glimpses of stuff, what is the church held to? Not universal salvation. The sheep and the goats tells us. But Jesus' own voice tells us. Okay? Um, so, yeah. Good. Good. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, that's uh, they died, and when every soul that died went to Hades. Every yeah, every soul up to that moment that died, everyone, King David, all of them, all of them, all of those who died in the flood, all of those who because of the evil that they had become and the destruction they were doing, when God has his people take the whole promised land, Jericho, they're all experiencing Christ. How about this one? Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. You see? All encountered the hope of every soul. Yeah, it would, it would not be, let me put it to you this way, what, regardless of whether everything in its entirety, every soul was released or not, it is only Christian to hope that it was. You see, it's only Christian to have the disposition to hope that that's the way it worked out, all right? Yeah. You know, dead gummit, somebody's always got to stump the priest. Enoch and Elijah. Well, actually, what happened is he was going up. There was a flat. He ended up falling down. No. Um, would you do me a favor? Would you email me that? It's perfect. It's a wonderful question, and I don't know the, the answer of, but I, we know where to go, right? So email me that question. Beautiful question. Melchizedek. Absolutely. Every no soul, no, no, no soul had an opportunity to regain paradise. Remember, the fall of the man before the fall was paradise. After the fall, all of creation took it on the chin from the experience of what we became because of the fall. We lost our eternal aspect. So everyone would enter into death, which wasn't there in paradise. And until our Lord bridged and made a way to the reception back into paradise, they, it, they could not go the, anywhere else. So, but, but remember this, captive, yes, not the fires and flames, just in captivity held there. Very different than in the end. 
right there. There he is. And for eternity, which eternity made all that time that they were captive. We say time, but remember this. When a soul dies, it's no longer in the confines of it. We got to remember that. But the eternity that they have now, the eternal reward that they have gained far surpasses that time both on earth and in the, the prison of Hades, see, comparatively. You know, there's a, there, one of my favorite scenes, and I, I'm telling you, it's 20 seconds long in the movie, and if you blink, you miss it, in The Passion of the Christ. When he gives up his ghost, we see 20 seconds of this. What happens is the camera pulls up looking down at the three crosses, and then the camera plunges right down Christ's cross into the ground, and we see Hades for literally 10, 15 seconds. And all you see is it's like a deep cave system, and every prison door to each cell is blown apart. And no one is in there but Satan. And Satan screams out in absolute sense of being conquered in agony and powerlessness. It all happens in 20 seconds of that film. By the way, I just, heard, I just read that, he, that they are about to start filming the sequel called The Resurrection, but guess what it's going to primarily focus on? The harrowing of hell. Based on all the, the history of the church's theology, which he brought a lot, he brought a lot of artwork and, the, and ancient theology into it. And there were some things that leaned on more Roman Catholic than, than us, but the reality is he did a pretty fine job of a lot of things. And that scene when, uh, when, when our Lord is taken off the cross and put in the arms of his mother, it's, it's the most well-known artistic rendering that, that it was based on, an artistic rendering. It's one of the most well-known of that thing. So he, he drew a lot of stuff. I'm fascinated to see what he does, but I love that image. I love that image. And I want to read in conclusion... I want to read to you a little of the early church poetry on the harrowing of Hades. And this is in Metropolitan Hilarion's book. And this particular poem is thought to have been written by none other than St. Athanasius of Alexandria himself, who gave us the doctrine of the incarnation when battling heresy. It's written from, the, from Christ's perspective of the harrowing of hell. Hades saw me and was shattered, and death ejected me and many with me. I have been vinegar and bitterness to it, and I went down with it as far as its depth, and I made a congregation of living among its dead. And I spoke with them by living lips, in order that my word may not be unprofitable. And those who died ran towards me. And they cried out and said, Son of God, have pity on us, and deal with us according to your kindness, and bring us out of the bonds of darkness, and open for us the door by which we may come out to you. For we perceive that our death does not touch you. May we also be saved with you because you are our Savior. 
Then I heard their voice, and I placed their faith in my heart, and I placed my name upon their head because they are free and they are mine. Isn't that gorgeous? The harrowing of Hades, the violent act of the love of God, right? If our Lord can accomplish, like I said earlier, if He can accomplish the deliverance of so many souls long imprisoned in the darkness of Hades, how can we think that He cannot deliver us with the same power, the same grip on our wrist, like Karen said, the same glory and life Bring us out of our darkness, our prisons, our bondage, our addictions, and our captivity, if we will but let him. Our salvation, I would tell you this, it's a constant descent of our Lord into our Hades. That's how he saves every one of us. Hmm? Let's stand and pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you all.